0: my Sunday school class and you have your books, turn to page 124. Last week we started talking about prophetic things and we started talking about the return of Jesus Christ and or the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you'll remember and recall, uh, it, it's, it could be confusing to some people if you didn't study or know uh, the Word of God. what it teaches and the second coming or the return of Jesus Christ was something that Christ himself promised we read in John chapter 14 when Jesus was talking to his disciples he said don't let your heart be troubled you believe in God believe also in me and he says I will come again and I'm going now I'm gonna prepare a place for you but I'm coming again to receive you to myself and so we looked at several promises in the Word of God we also looked at on the basis, how do we trust that that is true? Well, we trust it on the basis of the fact that prior prophecies in the Word of God have all come true to the letter. And so why would we not have faith or trust that the future ones or ones that haven't happened yet will also come true? And so that's our foundation as we have moved forward. And then the promise of Jesus himself, that he's God, he cannot lie. Jesus said, I'm coming again. And so we, we believe this as Bible-believing Christians that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. We don't know the day or the hour. No man does. Only the Lord does. But one day the trumpet's going to sound, amen, and the Lord Jesus Christ is coming. And we talked about how the coming of Christ or the second coming of Christ is in two stages. And this is where it could be confusing for people if they didn't understand or rightly divide the word of truth. There are some people who believe that God's people will also go through the tribulation and God's people will experience judgment on this earth and were caught up or raptured or caught away out of this world after all that is done. That is not true. I don't believe that's true. And I'll show you from the Word of God why. But we need to understand that the coming of Christ is in two distinct stages. And we had said that the first is the rapture. Which is Christ coming for his saints. And we looked uh, at a couple different passages of Scripture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let's go over there real quick. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we read from verse 13 where the Bible says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Now, Paul's talking to. Believers in Thessalonica who had loved ones who had died. And there were some people who were off in their doctrine and didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in a resurrection from the dead. And Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning this. Because there's some of you who are confused and you wonder well, because you don't believe in a resurrection, what happens to those who've died in Christ? and at this point in time as well they were looking for the coming of the lord and some people had even quit their jobs if you want to call it that and they were basically why should we the lord is coming we're just going to wait and watch and it's going to happen any minute well it didn't happen any minute and there were some who started mooching off of other people because things didn't happen how they thought they were going to happen now they don't have a job and they're starting to mooch off of other people to take care of them because life is still going on and you can read about that in the next chapter where Paul, Paul says, uh, some of you, uh, you need to work a job and you need to mind your own business and you need to get busy. And he, But he says, I'm going to take the time here to teach you some things about the coming of the Lord. And he says, I don't want you to sorrow as others who don't have any hope. We're not like those who are unsaved. We have hope in Christ. Why? Because he says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we know, or this we say unto you, by the word of the Lord. Here's the authority by which I'm telling you this. God himself. This we know by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or go before them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And we find here the catching away, or the rapture, Of the saints of God, it's for all those who've ever been saved, who have died. It's for all those who are alive and remain. If you know know the Lord Jesus Christ is your personal Savior, your child of God, one of these days we're going to be caught up out of this world. We note that Jesus Christ doesn't come all the way to the earth here. It's the catching away of the saints of God. What a blessed hope. What a blessed thought. Amen. Right, Seth? Look at the world right now. You know of all the stuff happening over in Israel and conflict with Hamas. And we just look at our country just crumbling. And people are insane. People lose their minds. And it's just like, uh, you could look at all that and you could be very discouraged. Like, as a saint of God, as a child of God, what hope do we have? If that's where our eyes are, right? But this world is not our home. And we look for the coming of the Lord, and one of these days, the Lord's going to take us away from the mess of this world. That's the rapture, coming for His saints. The second part of the Lord's coming is where Christ comes with His saints. And we read some passages of Scripture concerning that, the revelation of Jesus Christ. and. Go to, well, we don't, need to, we don't necessarily need to look back at all of these. Um, in Zechariah chapter 14, we read how when Jesus comes with his saints, he's going to set his feet down on the Mount of Olives. And the Bible told us that the mountain's going to cleave in two. And we had talked a lot about when Christ comes in the second phase, the return of Christ, and he puts his feet on the Mount of Olives. He's coming to make war. He's coming to judge, and the armies in heaven are coming with him. That's the saints of God, by the way, on white horses. And we're coming with the Lord, and he's going to make war, he's going to judge, and then he's going to set up his millennial kingdom. And so those are the two phases of the return of Christ. The rapture coming for the saints of God. His feet don't touch the ground. We're caught up. The second phase, the Lord comes back to make war. We come with him, his feet touch the ground, and then he's going to set up his reign. Now, do those two things happen back to back? Does the rapture happen and we're caught up into heaven and then right away we're coming back with the Lord? No, that is, I see some shaking your head. No, it doesn't happen back to back. It doesn't happen right away. There's some things that happen in between. There's some things that happen on the earth. There's also something that's happening in heaven in between the catching away of the saints and the return of Christ where he sets his feet down. There's some, some things that the Bible tells us are going on. And so today we're going to talk about what happens between the rapture and the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay? Everybody, everybody followed me? Everybody here? Okay. So we need to go back to the Old Testament. For this, because, and again, there's something that's happening on earth, but there's also something that's going to happen in heaven uh, in between these two phases. But I want you to go to Daniel chapter 9, please. Daniel chapter 9. And in the Old Testament uh, book of Daniel, we find a key to prophetic interpretation for us, find a key to what is going on uh, in between. The rapture and the revelation. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel prophesies about something called 70 weeks. Okay, And we're going to look at a few verses here. we will not go very deep into all of this, but we'll just lay the groundwork or, or the, the outline for what we need to understand. Because Daniel gives us an outline of God's prophetic dealings with his people, the Jews. Daniel chapter 9, and I want you to see verse 24. The Bible says, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the Most Holy." "'Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment "'to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince "'shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. "'The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. "'And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off.' "...but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city, and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with the flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease." And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even unto the consummation. And that determined shall be poured out upon the desolate. Now, there might be some things in here that would take us a little while to start to unpack and look at some historical things. But Daniel gives us an outline of God's dealings with the Jews and shows that there's going to be a seven-year period between the two phases of the second coming of Jesus Christ. All right, so we have the rapture, and we have the revelation. What happens in between? And Daniel is telling us that there's going to be a seven-year period in between those two things. Daniel 9.25 shows us that the weeks that he talks about here, look, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore And to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. And it shows us here that the weeks he's talking about are what are called heptads of years. They're not days, like we have a seven week or a seven day week. They're actually seven weeks of years, seven year periods of time. Um, and why is it that we can understand that or assert this? Well, because according to the prophecy, from the going forth of the commandment to rebuild Jerusalem, to the Messiah being cut off, that's talking about Jesus being crucified, it would be 7 plus 62, which equals 69. 69 weeks. Now, historically, from Uh, The rebuilding of the wall, which is the 20th year of Artaxerxes, Nehemiah chapter 2. You can read about it there in verses 1 through 8. It was was 454 B.C. From that time to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, which was in 30 A.D., there was 483 years. If you do the math, it's exactly 69 times 7. And so what we find is that a week is, in this case, 7 years. That part of the prophecy, 69 weeks, has already been fulfilled, and it's been fulfilled with perfect accuracy. Now, look at verse 27, because in Daniel nine twenty-seven, he speaks of a 70th week. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. What this is referring to is the seven-year tribulation period, one week. 69 of those weeks have been fulfilled. There's one week left, one week of years, seven years. And the tribulation period in the middle of that seven years, which is at three and a half years, he's going to cause, what does the Bible say here? He says he's going to cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. We read over in the book of Revelation, we, we read about the tribulation time. The Antichrist is going to make a, a pact with the nation of Israel, with the Jews. And there's going to be this, this pseudo-peace. But it'll be a three and a half year period where there's peace. And in the middle of that, he's going to break that, in, that peace treaty. And he's going uh, to profane the temple. And that's what he's talking about. The sacrifice to cease and the, obla- and the oblation to cease. And the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate. He's talking about the Antichrist, what he's going to do. But the point is, is that 70th week, it's describing events that have yet to be fulfilled. This is the tribulation period. Now, for our understanding, the present day, which is a day of grace, which is a day when, when God is giving men opportunity to repent The day of grace began and God's prophetic clock stopped at the end of the 69th week when Jesus Christ was crucified. The Messiah was cut off. And we read that in that passage from the time to rebuild the the walls to the time of the Messiah being cut off is this amount of time, this period. God's prophetic clock paused. And now it's a day of grace where God gives men opportunity to repent That 69th week, or the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy, has not happened yet. The final seven years of Daniel's prophecy is going to begin with the rapture. That's the point I'm trying to make. Does everybody follow that? When the rapture happens, God's prophetic clock starts again. And that final week of years, seven years, begins, which God is going to bring judgment on this world. And when Christians are caught up into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, Christians are not going to be involved in any of the events that are going to transpire on this earth during that period of time. Now, not in this lesson, but in a a next lesson or two, we're going to talk specifically about Daniel's 70th week. And I'm going to take you in the Scriptures and show you In the book of Revelation specifically, what God says is going to happen on this earth, in this world, after the saints are caught away and God begins to pour out judgment on this earth. But we know from the Scriptures that saints of God are not going to be involved in those events. Let me just point you to one passage of Scripture quickly. Go to 1 Thessalonians. Again and look at chapter five. First Thessalonians chapter five. And let's look in verse one. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. Basically, what he's saying is you're you're fully aware of what's happening all around, the times and the seasons. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. When he says the day of the Lord, he's not talking about the rapture. He's talking about the time when God uh, takes the con- full control. He's always been in control, but he's now going to start to pour out his judgment and his wrath on this earth. The day of the Lord is a, is a broad period of time when God is ordering and, and, and moving according to his plan. For this world, verse three. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Well, we know the Antichrist is going to make a peace treaty with Israel, and in in the whole world, in fact, and everyone's going to like, oh, there's just a bunch of peace going on in the world, and it's finally the thing we've been pushing for for millennia is peace. Peace is happening in this world. But he says, when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them. Look at verse 4. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. So what he's saying here is, you're different as brethren, as children of God, than other people. And he says, that day is not going to overtake you as a thief. He says in verse 5, you're all children of light. And the children of the day, we are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. Notice verse 9, for God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. That whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Wherefore comfort yourselves together and edify one another even as also ye do. And so Paul is giving comfort to these Thessalonian believers, saying, we're not appointed to wrath, We're not appointed to the judgment of God. That day is not going to overtake you. We're not going to go through God's judgment on this world for sin. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us. And whether we sleep, whether we're awake, we're appointed to live together with him. Hey, let that comfort your heart. Amen. There are those who believe in mid-trib rapture, meaning that halfway through the tribulation, that's the point that God is going to take God's people out because... That's the the great wrath of God at that point. And there are those who believe that we're living in the tribulation now. There's all kinds of weird stuff out there. No, the Bible teaches very specifically, God has not appointed us to wrath. The catching of the wave of the saints has not happened yet. Clearly, we're still here. Amen? If you know Jesus Christ. If you're still here, that means that, that God is, is still uh, wanting souls to be saved. He still has a job for us to do. And when the Lord says it's time, the trumpet's going to sound. God's people are going to be caught away. Then God's prophetic clock starts again in this world. Does that make sense? We look over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He's talking about some things that are related to the tribulation. And he says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. So Paul says, I'm beseeching you on the basis of the coming of Jesus Christ and on the basis of our gathering together unto Him. So He's talking to saints of God. And I'm, I'm, what I'm going to tell you right now is based on the fact that Christ is coming again and the fact that we're going to gather together with Him. Make sense? So then He says, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us as that day of christ is at hand so there were some who were writing letters and signing paul's name to it as if it was authoritative and those were all false things and paul says don't be troubled by all of that stuff that's out there he says in verse three let no man deceive you by any means don't be deceived "...for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember you not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? And now you know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time." For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth or holdeth back will let or hold back until he be taken out of the way. And then that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. What is Paul saying here? Number one, he's saying we don't look for the Antichrist. We look for the coming of Christ. I'm beseeching you on the fact that Christ is coming again and we're going to gather together unto him. Listen, the day of the Lord and the wrath of God hasn't happened yet, he says. You're still here. And then number two, he says, don't be shaken in mind. Don't be troubled. Don't be deceived by all that stuff out there because the Antichrist isn't going to even be revealed until some other later time. You don't look for that. And how do we know that? Because he says, the mystery of iniquity is already working. Only he who now letteth will let. And what he's talking about, that word letteth, it means to restrain. It means to hold back. So the one who is holding back things is going to continue to hold things back until he be taken out of the way. You know what that means? You know what he's talking about? He's talking about the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God is restraining things. Things aren't as bad as they could be. They're going to get as bad as they could be. But as long as the Spirit of God, the influence of the Holy Spirit is in the world, He's going to keep holding back until He's taken out of the way. When is it that the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way? When the saints of God are caught away to meet the Lord in the air. How do I know that? Because the Holy Spirit of God, His influence in the world is inside of you. He dwells inside of you. He lives inside of me. We possess the Holy Spirit of God. That is the influence of God in this world through Christian people and through the truth. And as long as He's here, there's this restraining influence. It's not as bad as it could be and will be, but when He's gone then all of a sudden there's nothing to hold back wickedness and evil. It tells us that when the catching away of the saints, the rapture happens, the influence of the Holy Spirit is gone in this world. I think that's awesome. That rejoices my heart because I'm not appointed to wrath. Amen? So, I don't know if that created more questions or... Or if you're all just asleep and dead people, that should comfort the heart, as Paul said. Comfort one another with these words. Amen. And so, what do we know about the second coming or the return of Christ? Well, it's in two stages. The rapture and the revelation. But what happens in between? How much time is in between those two things? Well, if we are... Interpreting the Word of God rightly, we would say that there's a seven-year period in between. And what is happening after the saints of God are caught away and we're in heaven with the Lord? What's happening on earth is the judgment of God on sin. But there's also something that's going to happen in heaven during that time. And that's what the Bible calls the judgment seat of Christ. All right? So everybody get in the picture? The world as we know it is declining. The Lord is coming soon, it seems like. But we're still here. And the next thing that we're looking for on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture. Once that happens, God's clock starts again. But he doesn't come to set up his millennial kingdom yet. There's a seven-year period in between. Something is happening on earth. It's the tribulation, the judgment of God. And we'll talk about that in another lesson But there's also something happening in heaven with the saints of God. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. And I want to spend the rest of our time here. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. All right? 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And Seth, I want you to read verse 10. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. Mike, I would like for you to look up Romans chapter 14. And I want you to read verses 10 through 12. Okay. Those are the two passages I want us to look at. So, Seth, go ahead and read 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. All right. Seth, tell me... In, break that verse down for me, give me the, the basic idea and understanding of what Paul is saying here. Uh, we will be judged for... Uh, we'll be judged for uh, how we live our conversations, how we obeyed our obedience, our holiness, our lifestyle, our racism, right? Okay. <clears throat> or opposite, right? Because he says whether it be good or bad, right? So he says, first of all, how many are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ? Now he's talking to save people here. We know that the catching away has already happened, right? That's only for saved people. So we're not being judged for our sin because Christ paid our sin debt. Amen? Okay, so we're not Experiencing the judgment of God on sin. But how many people are going to stand before the Lord then? It says all. It says all. So every saint of God, every Christian, without exception, is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done. And then he says, whether it be good or bad. Now, we're not being judged for our sins, so what must he be talking about here? Well, he's got to be talking about how we lived our life, the deeds we did. And he says, you might receive according to that. In other words, he's talking about those good things there's a reward for. The bad things, whatever that is in your life, we're not being judged for our sin, but it's all going to be burned up. By the judgment of God, the fire, the the the, not the fire of judgment on this world for sin, but God's refining fire. That kind of fire. Okay? And we're gonna look at something else here in just a minute. So now look at Romans chapter fourteen. okay so who is the judge according to that passage who who said that it's God right every knee's gonna bow before God and everyone's gonna give account to who to God and in that context Paul's saying hey don't compare yourself among yourself stop judging one another as if you're superior or as if you're better because you're not the judge God is the judge You need to consider yourself, you need to look at your own life because the fact is we're all gonna stand before God in judgment because God is the ultimate and final judge. That's the context here. But we do that sometimes. We think we're better than other people or we judge other people, we judge their actions as if I wouldn't do that or couldn't do that or we think we're superior in some way. And Paul says, stop judging one another. That's pride in your heart. Consider yourself because you're gonna give account to God and so are they. That's all that matters. But the point is, we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And God is going to be the one who judges our works, our life, whether it's good or bad. Now go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And notice verse 5. Daniel, would you please read 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 5. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. And then shall every man have praise of God. Ah, okay, well, there's some powerful truth in this verse right here. He says, don't judge anything before the time. We know that God is ultimately the judge. But when is that time? According to the very next phrase, when is that time? Till the Lord come, So he says, don't judge anything before the time. That judgment's not going to happen until the Lord comes. And God is going to be the one to bring to light the hidden things of darkness. He's also going to make known the counsels of the heart. And then he says, and every man shall have praise of who? God. God. Wow, that's another powerful. You know how much, this is a side note, not even part of the lesson here. It's just going to give it to you for free. How much are we motivated by what other people think? How much, motive, how much of what we do and how we think is, is, is motivated surely on what other people might think of us? A lot, if we're honest. And we might do things because we want, we want, we want... Uh, to be lauded of men, we want praise of men. We want people to say, "Oh, that was such a good message." And we want we want these things. We want all of this for ourselves, and we just. But the only one that actually matters is God. To have praise of God. Amen. And Lord, help us to be motivated by the right thing. Is the Lord pleased? Is there going to be praise of God? It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks or says. And I'm sick, I'm sick and tired of, of the flesh. And I'm sick and tired of, of, of making everything. You know, people make everything about them. I'm tired of it. Sometimes I do the same thing because it's my flesh. I'm sick of it. Why don't we just have the same heart and the same mind that we're all just going to serve God together. We have the same goal. We just want to please the Lord to stop judging one another and get busy doing the thing that we're supposed to do. Pleasing the Lord. Amen? Amen. Why can't we do that? That's the only thing that really matters. So that one was for free. I don't know if anybody needed that, but you're welcome. One way or the other. So, Romans chapter 14. We were there. Mike read that, but let's go back to that verse. Romans chapter 14. The point that I made here with this 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 5 is that the judgment time is, is not going to occur until the Lord comes. When is the Lord coming? What's the first thing? What's the thing we're looking for next? The rapture, right? And so it's telling us that this judgment time, the judgment seat of Christ, is not going to happen until the Lord comes. And so my point is, once we're caught away after the rapture, that's when the judgment seat of Christ is going to occur. Now, back in Romans 14... Let me get there. <clears throat> According to Romans fourteen and 1 Corinthians or Second Corinthians chapter five, who is it that is going to be summoned to appear before this judgment? In Romans fourteen and verse ten, it says it. Somebody tell me. It says all. It says every knee is going to bow as well, doesn't it? And so all Christians, all saints of God are going to stand before the Lord. Now look at verse 12, Romans 14 in verse 12. The Bible says here, so then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. What will be asked of us at the judgment of Christ, judgment seat of Christ? To give an account of ourselves. Right? What does that mean? You ever been in a situation where you're kind of in trouble, maybe with mom and dad or with the boss or whatever, and they say, explain yourself. Explain why you did that. Right? Even in those situations. And it's kind of like when we're in heaven before the Lord, we're not being judged for our sin, and it's going to be joyous that we're in heaven. But it almost makes me feel in my flesh like, uh oh. <laughs> Explain yourself. Explain why you lived the way you did with the life that I gave you. Explain why you spent your life the, this way when I gave you life and I gave you time and I gave, it was by my grace that I gave this to you. Explain why you lived it this way. Right? That's kind of. it makes me feel and it ought to make us sit back and like whoa you know what god didn't save you or me to live life for self he did not save us for us to heap to ourselves treasures in this world god did not save us to build retirement accounts that's not why he saved us god saved us to perform the good works that he has foreordained, that we should walk in those things. God saved us so that we would serve him. This life is temporal. It's all going to burn up. The question is, how are we living our life? And we ought to regularly take stock of, what is my main thrust? What is my main purpose? What is the thing that motivates me and drives me? Well, you know what? I'm, I'm working my job and I'm trying to build a house and I'm trying to have some retirement so that I have something to live off of when I'm old. And I'm trying to, well, listen, not any of those things are bad in and of themselves unless those things are what motivates us in this life. Unless those things are, are God. Does that make sense? And we have to keep body and soul together. We have to work. God's told us to do that. We have to take care of our families. Absolutely, we have to do those things. But that ought to be, uh, even, even through doing those things, we can still be laying up treasure in heaven. Even through doing those things, we can still be, my purpose is to be a witness of Jesus Christ and give glory to God while I do those things. Only you and God really know what motivates you. But we read in here that we're going to ask to give we're going to be asked of God to give an account of ourselves. Now, go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10 for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done whether it be good or bad now what aspect of our christian life is going to be scrutinized at the judgment seat of Christ here it says it in the verse Okay, that is the good and the bad, but that is in context of the things that he's done, according as he hath done. Notice that there? Every may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. So our works, the way we've lived our life, that's what is going to be scrutinized at the judgment. Now, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and I want us to read this very carefully here. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, in verse 9, you follow along here. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. You belong to God, He's building something. We are laborers with Him. Verse 10 says, according to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, Now, what the Word of God is telling us is that our life's works fall into different categories. The things you do in your body, the things you do in your life, your life's work falls into these categories. It could be gold, silver, precious stones. Those are spiritual things. Or it could be wood, hay, and stubble. Those are physical things, uh, temporal things. Those are things that are perishable, and he's saying basically your life's work uh, consists of either gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble. If a person lives their life for themselves, and all they're focused on is their retirement, and all they're focused on is the pleasure of this life now, and this life is really all about me, and so on, or... I want to serve the Lord. I want to do good works to please God. I want to serve other people. The Lord's put me in a body, in a church, to serve Him through my focus and my goal and my aim is to please God and to serve God. That's what drives me. Well, God keeps track of our life's work. Sometimes we even do good things... And we call it service to the Lord, but our motivation is I want to hear the accolades or I want to feel good about it. I want people to praise me. And it's like, you have your reward. You got the praise of men. That was great. But you know what? It's over now. But you didn't get praise of God, right? Even even the motivation for why we serve the Lord, why we sing in the choir, why we teach a Sunday school class, why we do whatever, it's being scrutinized. We're going to give an account for it. And it's going to fall into these categories of gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble. And then, (coughs) when we appear before the Lord, the Bible says... Every man's work shall be made manifest. It's going to be made known what your motives were. For the day shall declare it. What day? The judgment seat of Christ. That day. It's going to declare it. It's going to show what it was. And he says, Because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. It's the fire of God's judgment that is going to show what motivated you and how you live your life, and me, okay? And he says, if your work remains, it was gold, silver, precious stones. But if it's burned up, it shows that your life work was all temporal. The wood, the hay, the stubble, it's going to burn right up. In other words, what he's going to say is, your life's work, it's all going to be gone, and you've got nothing left to offer the Lord. But he himself will be saved, yet so as by fire. You know what that means? It means you're still a saved person. You're still a child of God. You're still going to be in heaven. And praise the Lord for that. But you've got nothing of eternal value. You've got nothing of reward to offer back to the Lord. I think that's going to be a shameful thing, actually save people. We're in heaven and we're going to be with the Lord forevermore. And that's rejoicing for that. But there's so much more. And we, we sing a song sometimes, by and by, when I look on his face, I'll wish I had given him more. We'll look back on our life and in context of eternity, we're going to see how temporal life was, how temporary it was, how meaningless it was outside of the context of serving jesus christ be meaningless and as a child of god what we want to hear is well done thou good and faithful servant that's what we want to hear so i think the point here for us is that we need to take a good look at our life regularly what is driving me and motivating me and the fact is, I'm going to stand before the Lord. I'm going to give an account for how I lived my life. I want something that's going to last. In verse 9 of the passage we read, the church at Corinth is called God's building, and the foundation of that building is Jesus Christ. The Lord is very interested and how we build upon this foundation, how we live our life. The Lord is very interested in that. And according to verse 12, the works are likened to gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble. I already mentioned that. If you're filling in your lesson sheet, those are your answers there. The fire of that judgment is going to reveal the value of of the work of each Christian. According to verse 15, it's possible for a Christian who has never served the Lord or has served Him acceptably, is it possible for them to be cast into hell? No, it is not. Because we're saved. We're saved. According to verse 14, what will a Christian who has served the Lord do? acceptably receive. He'll receive a reward. So the Bible speaks, then, of rewards as crowns. We can read about that in other passages of Scripture. In fact, we'll just do it quickly, because I think we're at... What time is it? Yeah, it's time for us to be done. Um, Let's just look at, at these quick passages so that you can understand the crowns and we'll finish up this section but basically your life's work that is spiritual that's done for the Lord the rewards we would would get the Bible calls them crowns and the Bible also says that we're going to cast those crowns at Jesus's feet we're going to give him the glory for the things that he rewards us with okay does that make sense so we receive the reward it's called a crown eventually those crowns we're going to cast back at the Lord's feet to give him honor and give him praise but there are five crowns uh, that we can receive uh, for our life and work as a Christian. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, let's see. Patrick, I want you to read 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 19. Josh, I want you to read James 1 in verse 12. Morgan, I want you to read 2 Timothy 4 and verse 8. And Brother Gerth, I want you to read 1 Corinthians 9 and in verse 25 and then Ron I want you to read 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 4 Go ahead and read once you get to your passage the first one 1 Thessalonians 219 Okay, so Paul says the crown of rejoicing is what, he's, what, it's, what it's called, but he says, are not even ye. He's talking to these particular people, and these people have been won to the Lord or led to the Lord by Paul. And so he says, you're my crown of rejoicing. This crown of rejoicing is a soul winner's crown. You know what? When you are instrumental and God uses you to lead another person to Jesus Christ and they get saved, there's a reward. It's the crown of rejoicing. That eventually you're going to be able to cast that crown back at Jesus' feet. That's a great crown. Amen. Amen. Okay, next one. James 1 and verse 12. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. The crown of life. And he says, Blessed are those who what? Endure temptation. That's trial, that's testing. That's tribulation. And he says that crown is for those who remain faithful unto the Lord, even unto death. That's a, that's a, a, a crown of, a, of one who is faithful, the crown of life. All right, next one, 2 Timothy 4.8. All right? He calls it the crown of righteousness, right? And what is that crown? Or who, is that, or who gets that crown? Those who what? According to that verse. That love, that love is appearing. They look for the Lord's return. And they love the return of the Lord. They live accordingly in their life based on the fact that Jesus is coming. I need to be ready. I want to be ready. I want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's the crown of righteousness for those who live according to the fact that the Lord is coming again. Okay, next one. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9.25. All right, the incorruptible crown. And what is that crown for? It's for the one, what does it say? Who striveth lawfully in all things. That's what he's talking about there. That is for a victorious Christian, one who is being sanctified, one who is fighting the flesh, one who's not living according to his flesh. He gets victory over his flesh. That's the victor's crown. Okay, the last one. The crown of glory. That crown is for a faithful pastor. He is when the chief shepherd shall appear. That's in the context where Peter is talking to pastors. And so, those are the crowns. And those are how your life is going to be tried by the fire of God's judgment. And only what's done for Christ is what's going to last. And those rewards eventually will cast at the Lord's feet. So, that's what's happening in heaven between the rapture, and the revelation. What's happening on earth? The tribulation, right? Everybody understand that? Okay, so we'll continue with this lesson uh, in our class next, not next week, uh, because I'll be gone, but the week after, and we're going to consider another thing that's happening in heaven during that time as well. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Amen. All right, good. You can be dismissed. Thanks.